Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Cuddles, and we're here to learn more about community broadband. Um, strokes are the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. and a leading cause of disability. Uh, and, and in Arkansas, they actually led the uh, U.S. in related deaths, and then here came telehealth, and things changed for the better in that state. Uh, today, we have um, Renee Joyner, who is the director of Arkansas Saves Stroke Telemedicine Program, Tina Benton, who is the oversight director of the Center for Distance Health. And also Roy Kitchens, who's the Arkansas E-Link Network Director, all of here to help explain, uh, you know, this incredible change that has benefited the state uh, as they have uh, implemented um, telehealth. Folks, thank you very much for um, being here. Uh, It's a great story that you have to tell, to share with the audience, and I'm going to let you take it away. I'm not sure who's going to lead off, but, you know, let's start with, you know, what was the situation up until you got telehealth uh, in terms of, you know, why why you had the, you know, the dubious honor, honor of being the, you know, having such a large amount of stroke-related um, deaths? So this is Renee. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction earlier. So before 2008 in Arkansas, there was really no effort to bring stroke care to rural emergency patients. Um, And in fact, less than 1% of patients in our rural areas are stroke patients were being treated. Um, And at the same time, like you mentioned, we were number one in stroke morbidity and mortality in the nation. And so we were able um, to receive funding from Medicaid to uh, develop a statewide telestroke program that crosses all hospital systems. Um, It's really a gap-filling program so that if there is an emergency department that's not stroke ready, in other words, doesn't have access to a vascular neurologist, we can provide that specialty through telemedicine in the ED on call. Um, When we started the program, we had three hospitals that were critical access hospitals um, that we did the pilot with to prove the concept, and the concept was proved very quickly because within um, a short period, we had our first patient in one of these emergency departments that received treatment, and, uh, and, and it went very, very well for the patient and the family. And so now we have 54 hospitals across the state um, that are in our system um, or in our program. Um, by this time next year, every emergency department in Arkansas will be what we call stroke ready. So they will be ready to take a stroke patient um, very quickly to treatment. And before this program, that that would have never even been a possibility. Wow. This is, um, 
Wow, this is pretty impressive. Um, so basically, without well, actually, you should probably tell people what um, some of the process is uh, because we may not be as familiar with you know what how do you actually treat uh, uh, stroke patients. So, so uh, we are able to treat patients that have ischemic stroke, which means they have a blood clot in the in the brain. And um, so we recommend that anyone that sees signs and symptoms of stroke call 911. Uh, we train our emergency services medics to be able to identify stroke symptoms. And so once they pick up a patient that they suspect is having a stroke, they will call their, uh, their local hospital, ED, uh, give them a, a stroke alert. At that point, then the stroke team at that hospital is alerted through a page, and they're ready to accept the patient as soon as the patient um, enters the, the emergency department. It's important with this uh, treatment that a very quick CT scan is done, um, and we do that so that we rule out a head bleed, um, because the, the treatment that we've got available for this is only for ischemic. So as soon as we do, so the EMS medics will take the patient straight from the ambulance CT room, even on their gurney, and do a CT scan. And that CT scan then is pushed to an image repository that's part of this program. Um, and then our on-call neurologist um, we can see that CT immediately, determine if it is a, a, a head bleed or if it's ischemic. Okay. Um, 85 to 87% of all strokes are ischemic. So once the CT is done, the ED um, um, nurse will call. We have a statewide call center that's um, operated with paramedics and nurses. And we have a 24-7 video support team. And those two will connect through video the ED department, the vascular neurologist, and our call center and video support. And the vascular neurologist on call then can do an assessment with the patient video and determine if that patient's eligible for treatment, make a recommendation to the ED physician on site for treatment. Um, and then once the patient is treated, because they're at a, a very rural hospital, they probably don't have the means to be able to provide follow-up care after treatment. So we assure them that we will find a higher level of care that will accept their patient. And then uh, they arrange for a transfer for that patient to a higher level of care. Last year, we, uh, we had 1,002 patients that were seen through video digital health, yeah, with a vascular neurologist, and 34% of them were treated. And of the 34% that were treated, 70% of those patients at three months either had no deficits or very slight deficits. So the program works. Clearly. Uh, the audience, my audience, obviously, is a lot of people that are involved in the um, the building of broadband networks, whether it's co-op or, or um, municipality and so forth, what's the value 
of the internet and all of this uh, how all, all this process from beginning to end you need to have a a fast internet connection. We do, and and one thing that we require is it has to be a secure network and HIPAA compliant, um, and it has to be high speed. We uh, and it has to be a dedicated network. You know, if if you're doing video consults um, in an emergency department with patients um, who who have an acute situation that has to be cared for quickly, you can't risk losing the connection with the specialist. And so there has to be a strong connection. And in Arkansas, we're fortunate enough to have our e-link program um, where we we have that available to us. Now, is that part of the, um, like the, the, the um, health care network that the state, um, I think it was made like, several years ago, uh, the investment they made in that? Yes, sir. Ah, okay. Roy, tell me a little bit more about the the broadband technology um, that makes this whole thing work. Okay. Now, uh, well, I mean, a little. Okay, maybe, maybe let me actually make it that uh, too too broad. I mean, basically, um, you need to have uh, fiber. And you need to have connections, but maybe a little more of a, maybe more details about how this all comes together. Okay, uh, so yeah, you also need redundancy. So as Renee uh, pointed out earlier, that because of the Arkansas E-Link network, we have dedicated circuits all across the state, especially in all the ERs. Uh, we provide a dedicated, in most locations, 10 meg circuit with a failover or redundancy just in case that circuit goes down. So mm -hmm. in addition to that uh, circuit, we have dedicated IT specialists that monitors this network 24-7. So if a site goes down, we know it instantaneously, uh, mm -hmm. and it, it can go through a different path because those hospitals are connect, connected uh, strategically across the state to hub huts that are in all four corners of the state. That So all that traffic can, if you have 12 locations in northwest Arkansas, each one of those locations can connect to the nearest hub hut, and then that one connection comes is piped back to UMS. That therefore, all of those locations are not coming back to the mothership. So they go to strategic hub hut hub hut locations across the state. Mm -hmm. So now, what kind of um, access would a state need? Uh, to have to bring this all together. I mean, Arkansas is a relatively small state, geographically speaking, right? But we've got, you know, Nevada and California and so forth, where there are uh, lots of people, lots of land. Um, you know, do you have a general idea of how they, um, you know, pulled this all together? I mean, I'm assuming it was done in phases. 
Yeah, it, it was done in phases. Uh, that's correct. So when we first got this network, we were able to go out for funding from the feds. We got a FCC, Federal Commission, uh, grant to extend broadband connectivity across the state, and I think that was $4.4 million. And this allowed us to go to 100 and give or take 40 sites in rural Arkansas to connect. And we we initially put in a 1.5-mega-bandwidth uh, circuit into those locations. But the problem with that FCC funding was it allowed us to build a bridge to nowhere because we were oh. so rural, we uh, deployed circuits across the state, but no one had any equipment to place at the end of that circuit. So eventually a broadband technologies opportunity uh, program grant came out. We refer to it as BTOP, and we were able to secure $102 million that was awarded to Arkansas E-Link, the Center for Distance Health, and with that funding, we were able to go back out to those 100-plus entities where we originally start, uh, installed a 1.5 circuit and put equipment at the end of that circuit, and we were also able to extend broadband coverage across the rest of the state to an additional 400 sites and deploy equipment at the end of those locations as well with the uh, broadband opportunities program, it paid for 100% of the cost at that time. So it paid 100% of the line charges. When that grant went away, we were able to go out for the Rural Health Care Connect funding. And what the Fed said, now BTOP has gone away, and their intent was when you get this funding, you should be able to be self-sustaining at least within three years. So after the funding went away, we went for Rural Health Care Connect funding, which now the feds would say we will pay 65% of your line charge because we paid 100% for years, and now we're expecting you to have some skin in the game. So we went out for that funding, and we were successful. So now that applies to all our members, and, and the network has grown substantially since then, and it's because we were able to go out and secure this funding to help build and sustain the network. Okay. But it would be fair to say that without that um, broadband or the money to, to invest in the broadband, that this sort of this miracle, you know, you go from – uh, 1% of the population of, or of stroke victims to get treatment, now it's up to, what, 33%. Um, the only way you can actually have achieved this is through through broadband. That is a true statement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, um, one of the questions might ask, uh, you might ask is, um, you know, you've connected the the hospitals. Um, from your experience, and you know, you've done several other programs besides uh, the stroke uh, uh, the treatments and so forth. But um, will 
the um, health care in the state, will it be, would it be beneficial if you had really uh, fast broadband connections all the way to people's houses? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like to the consumer. Like what? What would be the the advantage? Because there are people that want to want to shy away from having broadband go to people's homes because I think they view it as being a way to download uh, Netflix and and other entertainment. But if I'm following this correctly, you know, there's a real health need that can be. Uh, facilitated by putting broadband to people's homes. Yes. Let's take on that. Okay. Okay. So I'll speak briefly on that, and you're absolutely correct. So, what's to prevent someone at the home that the government has paid for broadband connectivity to be using up all that data, streaming Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or whoever? <laughs> and answer is nothing prevents that. But what I would say to that concept is when with our program, if we deploy devices to the home, be it a tablet or some type of kit to the home, we usually uh, enable that kit only to be used for a certain purposes for that program. So we remove all the options for that person to be able to use that iPad to stream Netflix. It's, it's used for the purpose and intention that it was placed at the home. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to do it. Now, how can you avoid someone else uh, getting on that bandwidth by using other devices? Uh, probably not as much because it's up to that carrier who's place that circuit into that home to really uh, do that, and I don't know if they will be be willing to do that. Uh, another way that you could possibly do it is when you provide a device to the home like we do it as, as an iPad, it comes with built-in connectivity. So mm-hmm. when they turn that iPad on, it's going to connect to the nearest Wi-Fi source, and it's going to call home to the mothership. So <laughs> that's another way to kind of prevent that from happening. Because mm-hmm. I was wondering if, um, you know, if I get a device, I go to, uh, you know, the hospital and I need to get, um, you know, services, telemedicine services and so forth. Is it not possible that um, I could be uh, somehow be able to um, – decide to pay more to allow my device to be able to access all of these entertainment and non-health related um, uh, services. Because I understand the value and the reason why you want to have the the use restricted to telehealth. I mean, that's why you're putting the, the money in and so forth. I mean, if you're the federal government. But once I get that uh, addressed, you know, it's worth it to me, I would think, to, for a few dollars more 
to then be able to just get the rest of the Internet. And that doesn't affect the healthcare folks. It doesn't affect, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure or, and so forth. But it just, but it does allow the the person to to, to take fully full advantage of the internet technology. Okay, I mean, I'm, so I'm gonna play the devil's advocate here. Go uh, ahead, we'll take that. You want your cake and eat it too. So if I'm the federal <laughs> government, I would say, and the federal government is about to le- release an FCC pilot grant. Uh, mm-hmm for about $100 million, and this grant is to go to the home, to the end user, uh, to be used with devices, et cetera. So your uh, theory could be done, but what the federal government is going to say is that, you know, we're going to pay for a bandwidth to go to X location to be used for X purposes. Now, if you're... At the home, you say, well, can I pay a little more and be able to piggyback off this bandwidth to use it for other services? That would be a discussion between that family member and that Internet service provider because, and it gets tricky. And the reason it gets tricky because if you're overseeing the grant, you're going to put in X amount of bandwidth and say this is the reason specific reasons that you can use this bandwidth. It would be up to that consumer to say, hey, Internet provider, uh, can we increase the bandwidth on this and we pay the difference? So the Internet provider will have to have two contracts, one with the consumer to say, okay, anything in excess over this bandwidth, you pay the difference, and with us, if we're the one – facilitating this grant that we pay only X amount. So it can be done, but it gets tricky. And the reason I say it gets tricky, with the Arkansas Stroke Program, I'm going to piggyback on that. We have installed dedicated circuits into the homes of the vascular neurologists that take call for the stroke program. And the reason we install dedicated circuits into those homes is to separate it from their internal Internet because if it was on their internal Internet, little Johnny or Mary is going to be streaming, and we wanted this bandwidth available and secure and ready when they had to take a stroke call and always be available. So your scenario can be done, but it just gets tricky and it muddies the water. Yeah, and we right. we use a dedicated circuit to their home. Yeah. Not we don't share in their personal internet nope. broadband. <clears throat> right, and I, was, I think that's fair for the. Okay. Consumer, right? In this scenario that you just laid out, you know, like the federal government has their uh, responsibilities and things that they want to take we charge of and so forth. But does um, when you talk about community owned network, public networks for the, the you know the, the individual cities, if they decide to build um, uh, that infrastructure, does it change the scenario that you laid out in terms of 
you know, the problems of having, you know, one contract for one type of service and another contract for another type of service and so forth. Um, would a, you know, would a, would a public uh, municipal network or co-op be able to navigate these waters uh, more more easily, or is it still a, a a problem, if you will? Well, what I would say to that is it depends, and it depends okay. on how much bandwidth is going to that home. That's the driving okay. factor for all of it. How much bandwidth is going to the home? I agree with you, and I'm an advocate. I think everyone should have the availability to high-speed bandwidth, and everyone in America should have that availability, and I think everyone in America should have the availability to great health care regardless of where they live. Where you live shouldn't determine whether you live or die. So if everyone can have uh, great bandwidth, it depends on the amount of bandwidth, and if it can work and the occupants of the home can use that bandwidth availability to do other things, not only streaming Netflix, but connect to uh, the Internet for schoolwork or, or to the universities to do their homework, and also for healthcare purposes. I'm a huge advocate of it. If it works, you know, it works. But there are those challenges that you have to be aware of. So, the, the driving factor is how much bandwidth is going to the home. Then the secondary right. factor is how many people are at the home, how many devices are at the home. Does all five children have a smartphone, including the mom and father? Do they have computers, laptops? Do they stream video? I mean, all of these components have to be taken into consideration uh, and if they have enough bandwidth for all that to work and then can connect their home health devices as well, so be it. I, I'm an advocate for it, but there are those nuances that you have to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So let's swing back to the, um, you know, the, the, origin, the origins of this telehealth service. Um, my understanding, um, well, actually, <laughs> I think a number of my uh, audience knows, but I, I had a stroke, um, oh, Lordy, uh, two and a half years ago. And I was lucky enough that I lived near a stroke center. And uh, when I got rolled into that, uh, unbeknown to me, uh, the neurologist running the program, she was 40 miles away uh, and they were talking about a Saturday night, so it was, you know, it, was, it could have been really bad news, but basically she was, she was there, um, and she was able to take charge of, you know, all of my treatments, get me the retri- uh, prescribed medicine and so forth, and this is, you know, someone who's away from the action, and I mean, she's at home, right? Um, what type of um, changes have you seen in Arkansas once you have this technology in place, the broadband, the, uh, the, so- the you know, software, whatever is required, the video uh, capabilities and so forth, um, 
I'm I'm thinking that things are changing because it not only can I get my neurologist on call if I have a major crisis, you know, just the day everyday stuff or the ongoing um, uh, chronic illnesses and so forth. It basically means I would think that healthcare in Arkansas has changed, and obviously for the better. Is that is that a, a fair statement? Yes, and this is Tina. <clears throat> so, you know, with the stroke program, every hospital ED has infrastructure uh, to see uh, to and capabilities for telemedicine. And so <clears throat> when we put it in for stroke, we started talking to the trauma people, and the trauma program was manned by the Arkansas Department of Health. So we have the railroad track laid, and so they looked at um, conditions that were high utilizer of transfers from one hospital to another. And two of those, excuse me, <clears throat> One was hand, and in Arkansas we have lots of hand injuries. Uh, we're farming communities and factory work and uh, construction, so we have lots of hand injuries. And then the other one is burns. And in Arkansas we only have 16 patient beds for burns. So when you move a patient to one of those 16 beds they have to they have to be the one that needs it the most so we can deliver care and instructions to other healthcare teams via telehealth for burns now through this infrastructure so our hand injuries trauma has 24/7 hand surgeons who are situated all over arkansas that do 24-7 assessments on hand injuries in all EDs in Arkansas. And we do the same thing with burn. Um, the burn surgeons beam in via telemedicine to the ED and see the patient where they, they entered the system, the healthcare system. And either they say transport immediately and start this medicine and um, <clears throat> all the kind of first treatment responses related to burn uh, before they even see the patient live. So we can expedite care or we say you can scrub this with X solutions, wrap it, and, uh, and then we'll make an appointment for tomorrow. And that's, okay. that happens a lot. And so <clears throat> it's not only an economical because we're not moving patients unnecessarily, but it's also we are treating patients before we actually see them. And we are starting care and expediting care that needs for those particularly highly acute patients. And that's even with hands, that's can we reattach or can we not? And so we make decisions like that, too, at the local site where the patient first uh, come in. So it, it really is a great filtering system, keeping patients local if they need it. And we want to fill up local patient beds, and we want to bring that particular reattachment of a hand or uh, a 
very sick, 85% burned individual to the bed of the highest security center in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything that we build, other entities can lay on top of it. And uh, so that's what we're doing. And in, in a community, if you have a community hospital, I just come from a, yesterday, I, I went to a very rural hospital in Arkansas. And <clears throat> they want to use telehealth because they have high needs for other subspecialty physicians. Unfortunately, they don't have enough population to have them in their community. So one idea is why not have one neurosurgeon for 12 hospitals or one infectious disease person for 15 hospitals and how can people connect to get that service and, it, and it's through collaboration. And so if you connect, we used to be fearful of it because we all as a hospital system competed against each other. But we can find common strands, you know, strands, just like the stroke program, just like hand, like burn. There's many, many other things uh, that we can use collaborative um, physician and subspecialty support to solve, not only for rural, but urban as well. And uh, look at everything that <clears throat> in a hospital system, what's our strengths? What can we help provide and support? And how can we connect it out to entities that don't have it? And so that's sort of what we're about, is collaborative health care, connecting across systems to provide services for our Kansans. Mm-hmm. So now, one of the things that I have um, uh, talked about in, in uh, conferences and so forth, when... Um, these cities that want to build their own broadband network or co-op or, you know, even a local uh, Internet service provider, right, there is a lot of pushback because of the cost. I mean, these, these things uh, are, you know, can run into the millions of dollars. If we're talking about, you know, just uh, hooking up hospitals, you know, there's lots of money and so forth that uh, through the FCC and RUS and other federal agencies, I'm guessing that state agencies as well have them as well. Um, but when it comes to bringing broadband to the home, everyone gets all self, you know, uh, cost conscious. But the things that you've described, uh, you know, the the, the uh, burn treatments, the hand treatments, and so forth. I think, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of dollars associated with trying to deliver those services now, right? I mean, so maybe you don't have broadband. But wouldn't the broadband uh, do making the healthcare delivery better and, and fat, cheaper, doesn't that cost, doesn't that basically uh, cancel out the cost of the building of these infrastructures. So in other words, if I say it's going to cost $3 million to build uh, a broadband network, I would think that the healthcare folks could come in and say, well, here is where you can actually save um, 
three million dollars. Now again, is that a good argument to advance that you know the dollars saved can offset the cost of building broadband to more homes within a day community? I mean, I think the dollars saved are to the in- insurance payers. You know, they pay for a helicopter ride, which is $30,000. And so, you know, I wish some of that funding from the the cost savings related to our infrastructure to the payers could come back to us to fund other entities, but that has not happened yet. Mm -hmm. Well, it would definitely make, I think it would justify the cost, uh, you know, the, the, the effort to at least try to make that, you know, um, case. Yes. Um, now, in the case of uh, ERs, right, because a lot of uh, when people talk about, you know, um, cost overruns in the healthcare arena, often they're talking about uh, people with a, who happen to have a sore throat will go to an ER because there's no other way to get service because they don't have uh, insurance. Um, and I believe that there's a certain amount of cost that the locality, whether it's the county or the community, pays for ER visits. You know, isn't that a case where you can say um, we're spending X amount of dollars to have all these people come into the ER but if we can offload, you know, 10%, 40% of that traffic to telehealth, does that make a viable case? Now, I don't understand a lot about finance and the healthcare system when it comes down to local uh, expenditures. But isn't that a, you know, is, is that a too far? Is that very far off in terms of my assessment? Well, I think every hospital negotiates. An unassigned care, um, they, there's dollars associated by the percentage of, of patients that come that have no insurance. And there is reimbursement strategies through Medicaid and Medicare for those patients. They get funding based on that percentage. Um, you know, I think it would be a, you know, a, a systems change. There's other things administratively like credentialing of the physicians, state licensure for those physicians or other practitioners uh, within the state that they are, you know, practicing uh, telehealth. So it's a, it's sort of like peeling an onion. There's a lot of moving parts, and there's also rules, uh, MTALA rules. Uh, related to ED and how you treat patients and how you receive them uh, that were strictly focused on not rejecting patients because of their ability to pay. And so right. we we do have formal structured rules related to that. So it, it's, it's a smorgasbord of factors that you have to consider when you are establishing uh, telehealth programs. Mm-hmm. You know, in reimbursement, we haven't hit on that. There's huge variations of reimbursement for telehealth services uh, from Medicaid to Medicare and other payers. There are state laws that have been implemented almost all across the nation now on parity for telehealth. But 
Having said that, you know, CMS, which our largest population is geriatrics, they are very, uh, they, they look very, very, sort of very focused because any time that you open access for care, dollars go up for cost related to health care. And so how do we integrate telehealth to the home where it, it is actually reasonable, feasible, and cost effective? Uh, there are some entities that have overutilized telehealth, and we don't want that to happen. We want the right amount of telehealth to happen that actually produces good patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then my recommendation to the builders of broadband is to say, you know, have you engaged your healthcare professionals, local, and, and I mean, even go to the state level and so forth. But basically, you know, when we when we start to, to build these networks, okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a general a broad generalization. But a lot of cities and co-ops and so forth, when they go at this issue of we wanna we wanna build a network, and we gotta figure out what how we're gonna pay for it, and there's a certain um, formula, for lack of a better word, that people go around, uh, go through, and I think what makes sense is to come back and maybe instead of saying, okay, we're going to try to build a, um, a an infrastructure, uh, we're going to go to we're going to go to build a uh, healthcare solution, and by the way, it happens to have broadband as a Part of that, and then as a result, whatever the end set of solutions are, broadband is part of that and is funded that way. And you might save a certain amount of heartburn, uh, and you might also open new avenues for getting this broadband funded if you just change the focus and say, hey, you know, we want to create, you know, a world-class telehealth center uh, for our community, our city, our state, or whatever, right? But by changing that focus, doesn't it make it easier to come up with new ideas, new funding, uh, maybe even new customers, both of the hospitals and of the uh, broadband uh, network folks? Mm -hmm. Again, I just want to see what your thoughts are of that. Um, well, two twofold. I'll talk to one, and I think Roy can talk to one. Um, okay. You know, the feds have a program called FirstNet, and I'll let Roy talk about that. And then the other is our insurance payment infrastructure. The way that doctors are paid now is based on fee for service, and if the healthcare providers were given, I'm going to give you $10 million and I want you to take care of X population. That's when telehealth makes sense because you don't want them to come to ED. You want them to call you if I'm their physician and say, hey, I'm having a relapse of X, Y, and Z. 
and we'll go, no, let's restart this med because you were on it before and it stabilized your, your problem. And and so then then it makes sense because if I'm $10 million, you know, got this $10 million to take care of X amount of population, then I can use telehealth for what I need to to have it for, not just a one-stop shop related just to uh, blood sugar monitoring or, you know, weight scales for um, patients that have um, issues with retaining fluid. Uh, so anyway, I think part of the problem is the way we get paid as a healthcare entity. And then Roy's going to talk to you about FirstNet, which is a federal program, which will actually elevate broadband to the local homes. Yeah. Right? Yes. Okay. Indirectly, but... Yeah. Thanks, Tina. Yes. And Greg, I want to echo what uh, Tina Benton just stated, uh, in which your scenarios about... The, the perfect world <laughs> and, you know, how it should be. And and I always say this, people don't necessarily do things because it's the right thing to do. And right. in this day and age, and this may not be a true statement across the board for everyone, and I'll I put that out there. I'm not lumping 100% of the people that I'm about to say something about into this world, but Healthcare entities currently, for the vast majority, as well as Internet service providers, for the vast majority, are in the business to make money. And that's the number one rule for being in the business, to make money. And until we change from this fee-for-service world, you know, it, it's going to be hard to approach that. That has to happen first because... Every hospital, even ours now, they're in the business to make money. That's how they get paid. It's fee for service. The more they do, the more they get paid, uh, and and that's just the way it is <laughs> currently. Mm -hmm. I mean, good, bad, or ugly, that's just the way it is. Uh, so FirstNet, what they are doing is they're coming back and trying to make broadband connectivity more affordable. Uh, their concept is building out uh, to enable if there is an, uh, the first responders uh, priority, if there is an accident on the interstate and there's gridlock and ambulances are trying to get there and it's a 100-car pileup, you know, everyone gets on their cell phone and tries to connect and call home or take videos. So what FirstNet is doing, they're going to give those first responders uh, Presidents are priority so their calls can get through so they can talk to the dispatchers, they can, can communicate with the, the hospitals, the ambulance drivers, etc. And they're trying to bring this technology in to make it a lot more affordable in those situations. So there is movement toward this, and, 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 and I think the, the good thing is that we're having intelligent conversations about what needs to happen and how can we better society as a whole and in hopes that we can get there. And the only way that you can really change things is people have to be willing to be open and honest and have these intellectual conversations on how to change it. Right. And, and the FirstNet 
they go to the towers and build out that security pathway for EMS and ED docks and things, they're going to build up infrastructure. Yes. So it's going to affect the whole community because there will be more broadband there for everyone. And so, you know, it's real important to see this working not only for disasters that happen and urgent things that happen, but it will build up infrastructure just like when the rural water and rural electricity came in. You know, what it didn't make sense. For example, I live one in a one mile long gravel road and I'm the end point for phone, I'm the end point for electricity and why would an electric company want to do one mile just to get to me? And so mm-hmm. some of this is about a community and providing water and electricity, and now it's broadband. Mm-hmm. And so that's yeah. where we're at. I think we'll get there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's a matter of building infrastructure to support the demand. Right. Now, one of the things I, I spoke with a um, uh, healthcare uh, consultant, and he basically said that you've got to bring uh, business uh, interests together, the healthcare interests, and community interests, and you got to bring them to the table, and everybody has to be willing to give up something in order to have, you know, the maximum type of uh, telehealth system, right? And that seemed logical to me. Um, You know, does anyone want to expound on uh, that thought? Well, do you want to say something? Well, yeah, well, what you're talking about is everyone has skin in the game. Yep, you know, there you go. If everyone has skin in the game, uh, then it works. And bringing those people together to the table and say, hey, we're willing to commit these resources uh, to make our world a better place or our community a better place, are you willing to have skin in the game and commit resources? And are you willing? And when intelligent people can get around the table and have uh, – intellectual conversations, then things can happen. You know, one thing I was going to mention earlier, when we talked about having telemedicine units in the hospitals or community clinics, that's opportunity cost. You know, when we put that equipment there in the hospital, yeah, they can use it for stroke, they can use it for trauma, they can use it for burn, they can use it for other subspecialty, other injuries that come into that ER, which in essence saves that hospital and it makes life better on the patient that comes to that facility. And I think for, and I'll I'll expand on him, any time a small community, they try to recruit businesses, they What's the health care like? Oh, we're connected to the academic health center, and we get all services. You know, when you have an answer like that versus, well, we have a critical access hospital that's, you know, less than 25 beds. And so 
a lot of times decisions are made on health care and education in a community. And if you can bring services, educational services, as well as health care services to a community, half the battle is over as far as getting new businesses into your your community. And why wouldn't businessmen that are already in that community to want to promulgate and, and, and also even pitch in a little dough uh, to expand the business infrastructure in that community. Mm -hmm. Definitely makes a point. And uh, we've, we've got about eight minutes or so left. Um, let's talk about the economic benefit of telehealth. Uh, and then this may be our last uh, uh, question, but, but from your perspective, you know, all of you, all three of you, um, what's the economic benefit that brings, uh, that comes to the table uh, once you put telehealth in, in place? Well, I, this is Renee, and so, you know, my, my specialty area is stroke, and certainly, you know, with a high percentage of our patients that we see now through this program being treated and doing well, you know, that reduces the long-term care cost um, for the community, for the providers, for um, the, those that do the reimbursement. And with the majority of these um, patients living in very, very rural communities, you know, if they had long-term care needs and rehab needs, that would not, they wouldn't be able to meet those needs in that community. They'd have to be using EMS to transport them back and forth for PT, OT, and, you know, other things. And so, you know, it's hard to quantify um, uh, all of that together, but, it, you know, it's huge. It's, it's an enormous economic impact. The, you know, the other thing that we see with a program like this is we do require and we do provide and train on the latest evidence-based treatment protocols for stroke. And by doing that in these EDs, what we found is that that leads over to other um, issues such as hand and burn or infectious disease or, or anything else because the providers get excited when they see that their patients are doing well and doing better. So it, it increases the care that's offered um, in those small communities. Okay, and uh, I'll piggyback off of Renee. The economic benefit for the telemedicine network and the ability to connect, uh, it could be multifactorial for a patient that has to come in for a post-op visit and drive two and a half hours to a hospital to find their way into the hospital to a waiting room with to wait for a doctor that is running an hour and a half behind for a doctor to see them for five minutes doesn't make sense, especially if that physician had the ability to see that patient over telemedicine by using that person using their smartphone phone from the comfort of their home because it didn't benefit that physician for that patient to come back in anyway because it was a post-op visit 
and it was part of their DRG. So they didn't make any more money. That patient, the economic benefit is that patient didn't have to take off from work or didn't have to pay for gas or get a loved one to come with them and drive to Big Little Rock and have to buy lunch <laughs> to see a doctor for five minutes. So, I mean, that's paramount. And on the physician side, it's beneficial to them because that time slot that that patient could have been coming in, they could have been seeing a patient that really needed to be seen. Right. That makes sense. Tina, what do you think? So economically, I think there's it's multifactorial, not only personally like Roy was talking with just cost related to travel and time off work but also cost to our payer system, which we all have to pay for insurance if you're in any kind of larger entity. Um, so insurance, we have to start thinking smart about our health care and how we deliver it. And there's all kinds of cost savings, decreasing uh, variability in in medical practice for certain illnesses is certainly something that we could do, and that's what we do in telehealth. You know, our telestroke program is very protocol-driven. Every ED functions similarly in the same manner in the same steps. And so also when you do that, costs related to training uh, and with nurses, if they had 10 doctors that did it 10 different ways, there's patient safety issues. And there's always cost when you make errors in medicine to the patient. Mm -hmm. And so I think we try to do the right thing by the evidence-based practice medicine and then <clears throat> utilize cost-saving measures related to the total health care, not just specific things, uh, and, and let providers utilize telehealth in manners which enhances not only their practice but what they give back to the patients. Um, that's very important, and it's very important for patient outcome, but it's very important for provider satisfaction too because I can assure you providers do want the best for their patients. And if we can make the perfect world would be deliver the right amount of telehealth services to the patient that they need and then bring them in, elevate them up as fast as you can when they're sick and then push them back down into the local community for convalescence and keep the beds in the local hospitals filled up. Okay. Everybody get economical benefit from all of that. Okay. I'm going to run wrap this up. Um, I want to thank um, Tina and Renee and Roy for a very uh, lively, uh, important discussion. Um, I think that, um, you know, we as, as, as a, um, you know, a patient community uh, need to be thankful for uh, the efforts of what you're doing and what other hospitals are doing, um, stroke is no 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 joke. I gotta tell you, <laughs> from personal experience, 
and um, what what you have done, uh, you know, using technology has been pretty pretty awe inspiring. And so I actually want to thank you for that, and thank you for today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.